If you would, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. We are in the middle or coming near the end of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus, and only hours before his arrest and his crucifixion, he is speaking with his disciples, not only preparing them for what it will happen uh, in just a very short time, uh, but in that preparation and through his words to them, he is giving wisdom and direction and insight for his disciples of every generation, all those who would follow in the depth and the wisdom of our God. Our passage this morning that we'll be reading is John 16, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. I have said all these things to you to keep you, uh, uh, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For, I do not go, for, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the, this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has, has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of our God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, our God, we do come before you this morning with thanksgiving that you have gathered us and stand amazed that you who has created and spoke all things into creation also will speak to us. We pray that even as your power formed the world and is now renewing the world by your speaking, by this word that you have spoken through your servant John, that you would form us as well, that you would make us new, that we would be what you have created us to be, more and more reflecting your glory and your grace and the character that is perfectly embodied in Christ. Make us like Jesus, we pray, through this word that he has spoken. We pray for his sake, for ours, and for the world's. In Jesus' name, amen. Historians seem to agree that Benedict Arnold was a complicated historical figure. 
For the first five years of the Revolutionary War, Arnold was seemingly a, a staunch patriot. And some historians suggest that he may have been the, the best combat officer in the Continental Army. But as most of you probably know, in 1780, something changed. Arnold defected to the British Army. Historian Arthur Lefkowitz writes that Arnold's change from patriot to traitor is one of the most compelling narratives in American history. He left those with whom he had been fighting and for whom he had been fighting to go to those whom he had been fighting. And then not only did he go and become a traitor to those who were formerly his friends and allies, he then began to fight against them. Not only was he enlisted as an officer in the British Army, but those of you that have visited Berkeley Plantation probably know that he was commissioned by the British and he landed there for the sole purpose of gathering up all of the people who had signed the Declaration of Independence so that they could hang them as a sign to anyone else who might have sympathies with this rebel cause. I was fascinated when I went to Berkeley Plantation by that thing. Somehow that brought the, that story, the fact that he had landed there and had come after the people in, in this area, uh, made a, fi a figure who had always been somewhat fictional in my mind. I mean, always was historical, but it just kind of his imaginary figure seemed to have made it come alive. And I began wondering at that time, what would possibly cause somebody who had almost everything, who had not only status, who had success, and who had the ear of then the, the leader, uh, General Washington, what would make somebody turn and go the opposite direction? And theories are many. Some people suggest that he had need for money and the British were willing to pay him. Other people have suggested he just became disillusioned with the, the whole cause. The battle had gone on and he, he was no longer uh, excited about this and considering the backbiting of the politics that were going on in Philadelphia at the time, that was certainly possible. Some suggest that it was because he didn't see a good outcome to this and he didn't want to find himself on the wrong side of history, or in other words, the wrong side of a news, having been a general in the Continental Army. Others suggest it was not, no, no more complicated than the influence of his wife, who though she was born into a prominent Philadelphia family, uh, she was, has proven to be later on, a, a covert spy for the British, and so her influence, no doubt. But scholars, uh, historians, they, they, they don't know. They, there's no specific thing that people have agreed on as to what would cause somebody who had been in such prominence and so significant to fall away. The passage that we have before us this morning, Jesus is warning his disciples, not only those who were uh, there before him that day, but through them, those who would come after them, uh, about the dangers uh, that are of falling away and the temptations and, and that would lead us to uh, possibly consider abandoning the cause. He's reminding us through this uh, passage that, uh, and the fact that he needs to tell his disciples, those who had been closest to him, maybe because the sting of Judas having gone just moments before was still resonating with him, knowing that the others are still to find out what Ju Judas had done would be giving thought about that as well. But even though God is certain of all things, we don't even know ourselves oftentimes. 
We can fall away in different degrees, whether we fall away like Judas or Benedict Arnold, which is ultimate and final, or whether we fall away and then move away from the power that might be ours. We're told that those, and God speaking through Jonah, that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And in those words, he's not talking necessarily about ultimate grace. That certainly is the case. But he's even speaking to those who are faithful followers. That when we get caught up in things other than God, we value things other than God, or instead of God. The grace that leads to peace and to joy that is ours in Jesus Christ sometimes is gone. We forfeit that. We are become disconnected from that. And in this passage, Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, here's what he, he writes in verse 1. I've said these things, and he's referring to everything that he said before, mostly in, in chapter 15, but the, the warning of the hatred uh, that the world and the possible persecution uh, that belongs to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The word falling away there in, in the Greek is skandalistheme, uh, the take, and the, the word at the beginning there um, is, is the same as we use for scandal. The root of the word is scandal. We translate it sometimes falling away, sometimes it's called going astray, but one New Testament uh, scholar says this about uh, the implications here. While it's often translated going astray or falling away, the more, generally mean, more general meaning is to give up on the Christian faith. That's the intent that he's saying. Jesus is saying, I am telling you these things in advance. I'm telling you what might happen so that when they happen, you will not be tempted to give up on this hope that we have that I've been teaching you about. And see, Jesus is reminding us that if we're not careful, social pressure, cultural marginalization, fear of possible persecution or, or suffering, they can cause us to slowly fall away much like Benedict Arnold, much like Judas, who had been with his disciples. Now, when this happens, it doesn't typically happen overnight. People don't get up one day having been thrilled and then the next day say, you know, I think I'll go do something else. Generally what happens is that because their interests begin to increase in other things, not always bad things, but other things, their interest in spiritual things, their desire for Christ begins to diminish. And then over a period of time with some self-deceit, the idea that I'm okay, I'm good, I'm still doing everything that I have always done. Eventually we begin to experience this hole, the sinkhole, feeling in our souls and that emptiness continues to rob us of our, our zeal until at some point our spiritual lives seem to cave in. We become a little bit more cynical. We become more critical. Our hearts become hardened. See, one of the things that we need to see in this passage is this, is that Jesus loves us too much to allow us to go in that direction. 
He loves us enough to confront us and to comfort us and to encourage us. And that's what we see in these following verses. What he says in verses 5 and 6 here. He says, look, I, um, I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. See, he's confronting them. He's obviously seeing their reaction to what he has been saying. And the way that he's speaking here, it seems that they, they're more caught up on the idea that they may suffer persecution. They are hearing that he won't be there with them. That's causing them sadness as well. But they seem to keep coming back on, you may have to suffer various trials. Because this world that you assume by, that we were just going to take it over is going to oppose you. And sometimes it's going to hate you, and sometimes it's going to hurt you. And as they fixated on that, Jesus, he, he's confronting them for the purpose of ultimately comforting and, and uh, encouraging. But he says, look, I said I'm going away, and nobody asked, where are you going? And what he's, it seems somewhat benign at this point, because I don't think that he says, the force of the text doesn't seem to suggest that he was really scolding them. He was drawing them out. He was turning their attention back onto themselves. But if we think about it, if we look closely as to what Jesus is saying here in the whole process in these verses, is he's turning their attention in one sense to themselves in order that they would be able to see their own self-absorption. So the reaction, he says, look, I told you these things and it's, it brought your heart sorrow. And it's not that it shouldn't bring sorrow. I mean, if I told you, you know, tomorrow is gonna to be a lousy day for you. You know, it's, it's not where you say, good. But it seems to be such that it was almost consuming them. It was clearly having the weight, having an effect on them. The weight of it was shaping them. And so he's pointing that out. And what he's saying to them is this is, you're so concerned about your circumstances and the possible suffering and that I won't be there with you that you're failing to consider that I've been teaching you this all along. I've been saying all along, something is going to happen that's going to take me away from you. But that has to happen. So that you and the rest of the world can have the blessing of God that God intended when he sent me in the first place. They were missing everything that he'd been teaching before because they were so wrapped up in their own circumstances. As I read this passage, I realize that Winnie the Pooh was right when he said, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in our hearts. But Jesus doesn't just confront. He's not just exposing, although he does expose that to us. And he's speaking to us as he's speaking through these disciples. Because we, Winnie the Pooh is right not just about them, but he's right about us. Sometimes things just take up so much room in our hearts that while we know God is there, we don't have the joy of the comfort of the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus here being sympathetic to the disciples. He continues in, in verse 7, having spoken to them. Look, in verse 6 he says, because I've said these things, you have sorrow in your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus 
shows sympathy. He's not scolding them. He's saying, look, I can tell that you're hurting. I can tell uh, that you're fearful. And, and he may be saying, I understand, but it, it certainly is understandable because we don't know, but we, he, they weren't focusing on what they did know. And then he tries to comfort them and to encourage them with a really bizarre statement. Certainly it would have been if you were one of the earliest disciples. Hey, it's going to be all right. I won't be here. It's going to be better for you. They'd invested the past three years of their lives believing that when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have the keys of the kingdom. I am the one who God has sent. I am the redeemer. I am the promised one. Everything that they believed was wrapped up in him. And now he says, and it's going to be better for you if I'm not even here. I mean, that is absolutely stunning. It must have been mystifying to the disciples when they heard Jesus say that to him. And it's a reminder to us today that contrary to common opinion among many Christians, it is better for us that Jesus is not beside us because as he promises, the Holy Spirit is now inside us. And that's what he is saying in this passage. He's saying, it's better for you that I go at Way over their head, no doubt. It goes over our heads as well. We constantly need to remind ourselves of this truth because how many times do we just feel like as we're in our devotion or we come to worship, which might feel a little bit dry at times, clearly not this morning, um, but, uh, and we just think if Jesus was just here, if I could just touch him, if I could just have him tangibly here. Jesus tells the disciples who had him standing there, it's better for you that I'm not here. And the reason for that is, he says, because if I was here, the helper wouldn't be here. In other words, as Jesus was limited to his physical body, though being God in very nature, he had taken up our identity. And so the power of God, the character of God, the image of God was embedded and dwelled in him. And yet he would minister only as he was in your presence. He ministered only in particular contexts. And what he's saying and what he's promising to believers that day and today as well is, it's better for you all if I go, because if I go, I'll come back in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is not limited by time and space and place and body in the same way that Jesus, although being God, is also all man. And the Spirit will be at work. And the Spirit will be at work within you. And then what Jesus does here is that he speaks and describes of the advantages that belong to the world and to believers through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he actually has two distinct lists here. We're going to focus mostly on what Jesus says, that the ministry of the Spirit to the world at large, and then in preparation for the table, we'll focus on, the, um, on what the ministry is that is distinct to believers. I'd love to do that, but looking at the clock, that's eh, gonna happen. Well, I could do it, but most of you wouldn't be here when I was done. So, um, <laughs> so Mark, if you haven't landed on a text and you wanna pick up from there next week, then that'd be great, but, and, but um, that's still be up to you. But Jesus says that there is a distinct ministries of the Spirit here, and, and here's what he says. When the Spirit comes, if you'll look with me in verse 8, and when he, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
It's the purpose. That's what the Spirit is going to do. He's going to come to the whole world, and, and that's, that's going to be declared, and the world will be convicted. We are included in that world because we are, well, we're part of the world, so we're included in, in this consideration. And as I look at this list, one of the things that comes to mind is this, is that if Jesus had only given us this list, our inclination might be able to say, you know, I can deal with that because I have a pretty good idea of what the Bible teaches about sin and what the Bible teaches about righteousness and what the Bible teaches about, uh, about, about the judgment. But we have, we're a little bit challenged. We have a problem because Jesus doesn't just leave it at the list. He then elaborates, and what he elaborates doesn't fit into most of our predisposed ideas of what is sin and what is righteousness and what is judgment. But he's telling us that it's to our advantage that he goes because the Spirit is going to come and he is going to bring that conviction. He's going to testify. He's going to teach, declare to the whole world these three truths. And then he elaborates on them and we see them in verses 9 and 10 and 11. And we see, first thing he says, is that there's going to be a conviction of sin. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And as we look at that, we, we need to recognize that Jesus here is giving us a, a different perspective, a different definition, perhaps, in one sense, of sin from what most of us tend to think. He's very definitely giving us a different way of, of looking at sin. See, most of us, when we think of sin, we think of sins, the actions, the acts that we do that are in violation of God's law. But if you do a careful study of the New Testament particularly, you'll find that almost never are the writers concerned and focused on sins, the actions, but on sin, the condition. And throughout the whole New Testament, we are we're told that sins are merely the manifestations of the disease. It's not the disease themselves. Think about it this way is my understanding. Those of you who are doctors can correct me later if I'm wrong. Please, gently, I hope. But, uh, but as my understanding, which that's my caveat, um, is that somebody who breaks out with chicken pox, the pox themselves are not the problem. If you could somehow get rid of all of the spots, the dots, that doesn't eradicate the virus that is within you. It's the virus that is the problem. That's the disease. And the manifestation of that is in the little spots and the little dots that itch and drive you crazy. Those of you who've ever wrestled with shingles have probably come to recognize that all too much because that virus has been within you having no manifestation for years and years and years. You had chicken pox when you were, what, five years old. Now... You know, you're 55, and all of a sudden, that virus that's been within you showing no manifestation, you got rid of the spots, and yet the condition is still there. The same thing is true for us as we look at sin, and this is what Jesus is clearly telling us. And the Spirit is going to come, and he's going to teach the world, this is what sin is. And the world wants to declare, no, no, no. World, there's right, there's wrong, and, you know, as long as we do what we believe is right and not do what we believe is wrong, we're fine. And they're neglecting, and we as the church uh, have a tendency to do that as well. We focus on the physical manifestations the violations of the specific rules, and we are neglectful of what the Spirit is convicting, which is that we all have a condition of sin that expresses itself in one way or another. And it is not limited only to the world that is unbelieving, but it is true for all of us who are here as well. The difference between us and the world is not that they are sinners and we are not in terms of commission. The difference is we are forgiven if we are in Christ, and they have yet to experience that hope. And the difference is they can't do anything but sin 
but we have the authority and the power to say no, which makes it all the worse when we don't. And Jesus is saying here that he's giving us a different way of looking at sin. And he's teaching us that the essence of sin is not that we break God's law, but he says that we don't believe God. Now, that itself seems a little bit strange. He's dealing with the, the condition, but what he's telling us this is that sin is, is an act of trusting another God, small g, that is really no God at all. It's an unbelief in Jesus, and, and, and it's assuming that something else other than Jesus, or in addition to Jesus, is going to give us the comfort, or the hope, or the purpose, or the identity that we so desperately desire. And we've experienced it in our lives. Some of you struggle with issues of lust. Statistically say that, guys, there's one in three in the church that are struggling with pornography. I heard a teacher one day at a seminar saying, guys, turn to the guy on your right, turn to the guy on your left. If the guy on your right is fine, and the guy on your left is fine, you got a problem. And it's somewhat amusing, but it's also very indicting. And the reason that people turn to that is because there is a release, there is an outlet, it satisfies a desire that is inordinate, and so it becomes an idol because it's bringing you comfort. It can be more foolish than that. Even in my own life, there was a time where things were going very, very difficult. And I was plowing through the difficulties. I wasn't ignoring them. But when I was not having to take things head on, I would go veg out and play video games. Just take about 15 minutes after I got home at 4 in the afternoon, then go to bed about 2 in the morning. Um, and, and, and I realized there's an addiction, and I was turning to that because it gave me comfort. I didn't have to deal with pain. I didn't have to deal with frustration. And we all have different things that we are inclined to that we turn to because they give us that comfort or that relief or it gives us that identity that we want the world to see. Or it seems to give us that purpose and we turn to them and we're not claiming that Jesus doesn't exist but we're trusting in that. We're not believing Jesus that not only does he do all of this but he alone is sufficient. And we're taking him plus, but Jesus says it's me and me alone. And then we also struggle with it because the God that we turn to oftentimes is not just the idol, but we turn ourselves into little gods. We want to be the Lord of our own lives. We are going to be the, the, the master of our fate and the captain of our souls. And then now that we are now established in that position, then we turn to God and say, maybe we can bend the living and true God's will through performance of doing things, whether just good things or religious things. All of these are an indication of the condition that's within us, and it's all an evidence that we, while claiming as believers or the world not, that we are not believing Jesus is sufficient and that he gives us everything. The Spirit comes and brings that conviction. The Spirit also is going to bring a, con a conviction about righteousness, we're told in, in verse 10. Verse 10 tells us this, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, I don't think it's any news to say that the world has its own standard of what is considered to be righteous. Some of it coincides with what the Bible says. A lot of it does not coincide with what the Bible says. But in short, the idea of the world's standard for righteousness is this. 
follow whatever rules that are declared to be right and don't violate those rules or those values. And our culture has become ripe with what is known as virtue signaling. We stand very much visibly opposed to things that not only are clearly wrong, but through this whole philosophy of intersectionality, things that might somehow have connection to the things that are wrong, and we see hostility and a crusade that is sweeping across our culture because the righteousness of the standards of the world is clearly being violated and oftentimes it's being violated by the very ones who are trying to be faithful to what God has declared. And so the world is not without its idea of righteousness. In other words, righteousness is just being true to what you believe to be right is, is, the, is the simplest definition of it. But here Jesus is saying the Spirit's going to come and it's going to bring a conviction of righteousness. And really it's going to be the same kind of conviction that Jesus brought. Now in Jesus' life we might not look at, if we look at the Gospels and call it a, the, the conviction as much as an irritation. Jesus was the living embodiment of the righteousness of God. And wherever he went, some people were excited and drawn to him and other people were angry because his very presence undermined and crushed their own ideas of what is right and righteousness. And when he declared to be God, that detached them from any claim to moral authority in their own standards of righteousness. And he drove them nuts. And he says the Spirit is going to come. And the Spirit is going to remind the world, he's going to declare to the world, what the real righteousness is, and the real righteousness is Jesus Christ. Not just that he is our model and our example, but that he is our righteousness. And the essence of being a believer, the heart of the doctrine of justification, is understanding this. The best illustration I've heard about this would be like this. Think about it in this way. Imagine that you have a broken down old heap of a car a jalopy that may or may not get you to work. But that's the car that you have. Then somebody comes and offers you a brand new car, whatever the dream car you might have. It's reliable. It's sharp. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And it's gas efficient. And the way that we tend to respond is like this. Imagine now you decide to put those two cars side by side. And you see very clearly the difference between the two cars there. And you respond by thinking this. What I need to do is to study that new car. Learn as much as I can about it. And maybe even learn to copy its parts. And from time to now, over time, Replace the parts in, in my car. It, it'll never be quite as good as the other one, but you know, over time, year after year, my car will get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, and I just keep studying that other car. It, the reality is, if somebody offers you that deal, throw away your keys and take the new car. Get in, drive away. And 
yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. But Jesus came not just to be a model, but to be our righteousness. Throw away the old and get in and live in the new. Paul says it this way in, in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, what Paul is saying, look, I'm dead. I'm, I'm no longer that old car. I live in Christ. And, and because I live in Christ, the power of Christ is, the, is what's driving me around this world. That's the essence of righteousness, by, of, of trusting that Jesus is our righteousness. That the Spirit will come and declare, this is righteousness. Christ alone is righteousness. Get out of the old. Trust in the new and live in that which is new. And it's not a process. The process is simply learning not to go back into your new car, old car and to live in the new car. Third, essentially final. The Spirit will bring a conviction of judgment. We see it in verse 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So what Jesus is pointing to the disciples to is the cross that's about to take place in just a few hours. Satan, who saw the whole thing unfolding, thought that he had won, that this was great, that if he could, and even as on the next day when the, Jesus expired on the cross and declared it as finished, was a part of the enemy that assumed it sure is game over. Because this son of God made the foolish mistake of coming and becoming man, becoming subject to death. And now if you can just put to death God who has come in the flesh, game is over. They can't do anything. The people can't be saved anymore. But he didn't understand that it was for the very purpose of dying that Jesus took on the flesh. That he became like us. Because it was through the dying that he was going to win the victory and defeat the enemy. It would be like this. Imagine if uh, like a basketball game was taking place and you thought that you were winning and you got a rebound at the very end and you decided to run out the clock only to realize that you secured the team losing. That's exactly what Satan was doing on the cross. I mean, it's hypothetical, I know. I couldn't resist it for those of you who are from Cleveland. But anyway, that's... Uh... And that's exactly what is taking place. Here's the picture of what Jesus is pointing us to. There's going to be conviction. There's going to be a judgment. And he says, because judgment is going to come because the ruler of this world is judged. And so we have a picture of the judgment that is yet to come. And Eugene Peterson, in his short book, uh, which is about the, the book of Revelation, it's called Reverse Thunder. He has a marvelous part of that where he's pointing out uh, the, this judgment. He says, look, after a long battle, long history of battle between the forces of Satan and, and against the people of God, it has come to a culmination at this point in Revelation. And we think that there's going to be this great epic battle. And then we read in Revelation 20, as it all comes to an end, and Satan is gathering all of his troops and he is ready for this war to destroy the people of God. And instead of the great battle, Here's what we see, reading all from, from Revelation. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You're in trouble. Epic battle. They're surrounded. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. That's all it says. 
the forces are getting marched. We're looking for this great epic battle, like something out of Lord of the Rings. And instead, we get that scene from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones is facing his fierce foe with his wheeling sword, pulls out his pistol, boom, and goes, sh shoots him. That's what happens. Satan, who thinks that he's going to win, has been waging battle all the time. When God finally says, okay, now it's time, boom, it's over. It's no war. It's a judgment. And because the judgment of this world has been destroyed in this way, then any one of his minions are exposed as have been following the wrong camp, and all of them are wiped out. Because it wasn't just, they're all wiped out. And this is the truth that the Spirit convicts. Now, the difference between the believers and the unbelieving world is that the believers get angry with, uh, the believers uh, recognize the, the brokenness in their own life and that they have no hope, and they accept the hope that is offered in Christ that he was declaring, because saying, this is the reality, and I'm the only hope. But the world gets angry at the idea of the narrowness of only one hope or the idea that we are painted as unneeding of any hope, that we can't be the gods of our own life, and they reject it. But the conviction is on all. The difference is whether or not we are trusting in God's provision or whether or not we are responding in anger and frustration and in self-reliance. And then we are told, and I'm just going to summarize this as we come to the table, that the Spirit is not only bringing a conviction to the whole world, but there is something that is new and it is specific to the believers. And we see that in the following verses, that the Spirit has three ministries to his people, to the church. He will guide us into all truth. And if I was going to elaborate on this, I would remind us all that Jesus is the truth. And he will declare the things to come for the sake of the glory of Christ. But as we come to this table, I want you to understand this, something that I thought felt very, very helpful for me that I really hadn't thought through. I, I leaned this way. I knew there must be something, but I hadn't thought this through. But from the insights of Frederick Dale Bruner, when he's talking about the declaring of the things to come, we need to recognize the time in which this is to happen. We think, okay, well, what's coming tomorrow? Well, the disciples were being told what was going to happen in their tomorrow, and what was happening in their tomorrow that was to come is the hope that we have. Jesus was saying, here's what's to come to his early disciples. I'm going to the cross. This is what's going to come. And the Spirit continually points us back to what was to come for them. And we face what is to come for us, rooted in the reality of what was to come for them. Listen to what Bruner says. I think this weekend's events, meaning the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, crucifixion and resurrection, are the definition of this mysterious expression, things to come. Namely, the passion, resurrection, and then ultimately the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's Brunner's words. The Spirit will be crucio-christocentric. I love that word. It's hyphenated, so it is one word. Crucio-christocentric means cross of Christ-centered. And that's what he's teaching in these verses. The Spirit will be to us cross, cross, cross of Christ-centered. He's going to point us to what was to come for the disciples and anchor us in that truth. All were told for the purpose of glorifying Christ. He's going to take all of the truths that are revealed by God and he's going to connect them. Always be reminding us of how every truth that we live in, not just know, is connected to what took place that weekend on the cross. The spirit will be crucio Christocentric, cross of Christ-centered emphasizing the great events before, during, and after the cross more than the Spirit will be anything else in his ministry. This center, which is Jesus, is the full revelation that the Spirit will keep giving to the church as her perpetual guide and truth. 